First Samuel chapter 26. Open your Bibles, please, to 1 Samuel chapter 26. Kids, if you're here, I've got some children here. We've got Children's Church this morning, as we do for both services. You guys can go out. Uh, the nursery's there, and, and Children's Church, K through 8th grade, I believe. So, again, kind of quiet this morning. Most people are going to come to the 11. We're going to be um, on the hospitality team. Put, probably put some chairs out we may need, but uh, we hope you come back. Maybe you're here, like, you know, we're going to run to the store and come back at 11 o'clock or meet us down at the park at 1 o'clock. So, uh, we're glad you're here this morning. Uh, it would have been silly for me sitting here by myself. But, um, so come back, come back to, the, to, the, uh, to the park. It would be great. Um, so we're in 1 Samuel chapter 26, uh, 31 chapters in that book. And then we'll jump into 2 Samuel come September. Um, before I read our scripture lessons, and if you've been tracking with me, you'll, you'll hear, you hear as I read 1 Samuel chapter 26, something very familiar. It's been going on. Some, there, there are several similarities between chapter 26, our scripture lesson today, and chapter 24, which we did two weeks ago, an intense drama. There's, there's danger, there's suspense, and there's surprises. The, the king, again, is in the hands of, of David, uh, although this time he's not taking a potty break, for, for better words, chapter 24. He's actually sound asleep, both realities that we need for human life, uh, although this time God gives us a glimpse into his sovereignty and his providence in the, in the mundane things of life. Little context as I, before I read chapter 26 uh, this morning, just a little bit of context. As you remember, Saul has been anointed the king, the first king of Israel. God has allowed him to be king in part as, as judgment, really, because they wanted the king that they wanted, not the king that God wanted for them. Uh, God allowed him to be king. And he wasn't the man that God had wanted, but God will uh, bring David in the picture. And if you remember, it wasn't long after Samuel had anointed Saul, first king, remember, the word anointed, Messiah, uh, the Christ, that he was Christed, uh, that he refused to obey God. He wanted to be his own king, his own master, and he refused to obey him. And then God told him that his kingdom will not last, that the kingdom will be ripped from Saul, not even given to his son, but will be given to another person, a neighbor who is better than you, who has a heart, God says, after me, who by my grace will be changed and his heart will be humble before me. And in comes David, the shepherd boy. He will be the second king of Israel. But as we've been noticing over the past several weeks, it's not going to come easy. It's not an easy task for this kingdom transfer. But it could have been. I mean, think about it. It could have been easy. God could have taken Saul out right when he disobeyed and stripped the kingdom from him and had given it and then turned around and given it to David. It could have been quick and easy. Why? Because David had to learn just what Jesus had to learn. In Hebrews chapter 5, it says, Jesus learned obedience through suffering. Amazing verse. Jesus learned obedience through suffering. Unlike David, Jesus did it perfectly, but there was suffering. Opposite of the prosperity gospel, who teaches everything is supposed to be well, prosper in all things. That's why I hate the prosperity gospel. David is growing into the man God wants him to be, and where is all this happening? Remember we said it's in the wilderness, that God drives us and brings us into the wilderness, into the desert. 
It's where Moses first met God. It's where Jacob wrestled with God face to face. It is the place of profound temptation of the Lord Jesus himself. The wilderness, the place where you cannot survive without the intervention of God. And God brings us into the wilderness so that we need the water from God, from the rock. We need the man of God from heaven is the place where we learn our utter dependency upon God. It's the place where our pseudo salvations, the things we place our hopes in collapses. The dry shaft of our heart is exposed. The wilderness becomes the place where ultimate treasure is God. And we cling to Christ, the incalculable worth of God. Chapter 24, David in the wilderness, remember? He, he, was, he was tested. He, he, the test was grab the throne now. Take the easy way out before your appointed time. If you remember, he could have cut the throat of the king, but he doesn't. He cuts the robe of the king, and he leaves vengeance to the Lord. He passed the test, chapter 24. Today he will face a similar circumstance, chapter 24 and chapter six, 26. But in between what we learned last week in chapter 25, if you remember, there's a man named Nabal. Nabal was a fool. That's what his name means. He's, he is, what does it say? He is harsh and poorly behaved, and he treats David disrespectfully. Uh, and he, he shames him. And, and, and David, in, in this vicious, vengeful anger, decides that he will kill Nabal. And all the male servants in his house. David, who was the restrainer in chapter 24, not letting anything happen to the king, who said, vengeance is of the Lord, chapter 24. Now in chapter 25, David must be restrained. He, he is bent on spilling innocent blood for if not for abigail the beautiful the lovely the wise the discerning abigail nabal's wife david would have committed the same if not worse than what king saul committed or ordered the killing of 85 priests you remember at nob chapter 25 is sandwiched in between chapter 24 and chapter 26 on purpose david learned chapter 24 vengeance of the lord david learned chapter 25 that he has a heart that can be vengeful that's scary and now in chapter 26, he's given another opportunity, and he's grown. We're going to see that. David has grown. He has the same opportunity to, to take out the king, and he doesn't. And he, he's growing in his, in his faith. He's growing. He's being what the Bible calls sanctified, growing and learning to be more like Jesus. So that's the context, chapter 26. Better turn there. Hear the word of the Lord, the inspired, inerrant, infallible, authoritative word of God. Chapter 26, verse 1. Then the Zephites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David himself on the hill of Hakalah, which is on the east of Jeshimon? So Saul rose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph with 3,000 chosen men, we've seen that before, of Israel, to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul encamped on the hill of Hakalah, which is beside the road east of Jeshimon. But David remained in the wilderness. When he saw that Saul came out after him in the wilderness, David sent out spies. And he learned that Saul had indeed come. Then David rose, came to the place where Saul was encamped, and David saw the place where Saul lay with Abner. Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of Ner, the commander of his army. Saul was lying within the encampment while the army was encamped around him. Verse 6. 
Then David said to Ahimelech, the Hittite, different Ahimelech than what, we, what we've seen before, and to Job's brother, Abishai, the son of Zeharahu, who will go down with me, he says, into the camp to Saul. And I'm going to call him Abe for now on because I've got to say his name like 35 times. Now Abe, Abe said, I will go down with you. So David and Abe went to the army by night. And there lay Saul sleeping hmm, within the encampment with his spear stuck in the ground at his head. And Abner and the army lay around him. Then Abe said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear. And I will strike, I will not strike him twice. But David said to Abe, do not destroy him. For who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed, but take now the spear that is at his head and the jar of water and let us go. So David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head, and they went away. No man saw it or knew it, nor did any awake, for, interesting, they were all asleep. Because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. Then David went over to the other side and stood far off at the top of the hill with a great space between them, smart man. And verse 14, and David called to the army and Abner, the son of Ner, saying, will you not answer Abner? Then Abner answered, who are you who calls to the king? And David said to Abner, are you not a man who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not kept watch over your Lord, the king? One of the people came in to destroy the king, your Lord. This thing that you have done is not good. As the Lord lives, you deserve to die because you have not kept watch over your Lord. The Lord's anointed. And now see the king's spear is and the jar of water that was at his head. Saul recognized David's voice and said, "Is, is this your voice, my son, David? And David said, it is my voice, my Lord, O king. And he said, why does my Lord pursue after his servant? What have I done? What evil is on my hands? Now, therefore, let my lord, the king, hear the words of the servant. If it is, if it is the Lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. But if it is men, hmm, may they be cursed before the Lord, for they have driven me out of this day, that I should have no share in the inheritance of the Lord, saying, Go serve other gods. Now, therefore, let not my blood Fall to the earth, away from the presence of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to seek a single flea, like one who hunts a partridge in the mountains. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son, for I will no more do you harm, because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I have acted foolishly and have made a great mistake. And David answered and said, Here is the spear, O king. Let one of the young men come over and take it. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hands today. And I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, verse 24. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord. And may he deliver me out of all tribulation. Then Saul said to David, this is the last words they'll say to each other. Blessed be you, my son David. You will do many things and will succeed in them. So David went his way and Saul returned to his place. And God had a blessing.
to the reading of his word. Three simple things. The breach camp, the bewildered question, and the beloved Savior will end on the gospel. We'll see the gospel clearly taught by David here in our text. So, number one. Don't have all the verses up. You have a Bible, uh, grab it, um, open up, and you can follow along. You're going to need to, okay? I don't have all the verses up. too many. So the, the chapter opens up with the Ziphites at it again. I mentioned it last time. I made up a word. It's called snitchery. They're, they're a bunch of snitches. You must run in their blood. Because in chapter 23, the same people, the Ziphites, went to Saul in Gibeah saying, Is not Saul hiding among us? He's in the strongholds of Herosh. He's on the hill of Hakalah, which is south of Jeshimon. And now in verse 1, they're at it again. They're telling Saul where the whereabouts of David. This time he's not on the, the, uh, the south. He's on the east side of Jeshimon. If you remember, back in chapter 23, when the, when, when the Ziphites had told Saul where David was, it was the closest he, that David came, excuse me, Saul came to David, if you remember. They were, they were coming down the mountainside in Maon. And, and as it got to the bottom and they almost had... The conflict almost took place. Saul, who's trying to kill David, and David coming down the mountainside. If you remember, by the, by the providence of God, one of the people said to Saul, listen, we can't, we can't stay, we got to go, because the, the, uh, the Philistines have infiltrated the land, and Saul just turned around by the providence of God and went back into the land, wherever, the, it doesn't say exactly where, to fight against the Philistines. So, they're good informants. Saul, Saul's going to listen to them. And you've got to ask the question, I know I did, why are they, why are they giving up, Saul, up David? I mean, what is it with the Ziphites that they've got to go and tell Saul whenever David comes into the land? I think they're afraid. I think it's fear. I, I think they're afraid that Saul's going to find out that David's in their land and they did not tell the king. And, and I'm sure everyone knows about the, 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 the murder of 85 priests and, his, and their families at Nob. Everyone knows that David's a fugitive. They were controlled, I believe, by fear. Why else would they tell him? Oswald Chambers writes this about fear. He says, the remarkable thing about fearing God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas, if you do not fear God, you fear everything else, end quote. Now, fear, we're talking reverence, we're talking awe. And once again, King Saul finds out where David is. He takes 3,000, he did that last time, 3,000 men, chapter 24. He chose the best of the best to go after David. Saul's humility, chapter 24, I love this. He just, he just in chapter 24, he said this. Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, you are more righteous than I. You have repaid me good, where have I repaid you evil? So I guess that doesn't mean anything, right? Because his remorse is, 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 is meaningless. He makes these oaths, he makes these promises, I'll never go after you again. And what happens? As soon as he gets an opportunity, he goes right after David again. So, he, so I want you to see this. He's going after David. He finds out where he is here on the road. And after a long day of travel, he takes his men, 3,000 of them, and they decide to rest. David finds out he's in the neighborhood. He, he's coming after me. Remember, David is outnumbered how many? Five to one. He's got about 600, maybe 400 men there on the scene. 
to 3,000. So he sends out spies. He's like, listen, let, let's find out where the king is and, 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 and what's going on. And spies come back, and David finds out where he is, and David goes to the place where Saul is. And who's with Saul? Abner. He's his cousin. Saul, Abner is the cousin of Saul. He's also the commander of the army. Abner is seen in the scriptures, highly respected. He's also a man who's sitting at the table. He's right now. He's the, he's the, he's the, the right-hand man of Saul. He's at the table eating with Saul. He's the cousin of Saul, the commander of the army. He's the guy that was with King Saul when David killed Goliath. And they come back, who is this guy? He's asking Abner. Very trusted man. Saul has a confidant. And he's sleeping. They're, they're, they're resting. So, so David says, listen, I'm not going to go down alone. Somebody come with me. And what does he do? He picks Abishai. I'll go with you. So there they are at night. I want you to see this. They wait till the sun goes down. It's nighttime. And they breach the camp. And what do they see? They see Abner asleep. They see King Saul asleep. Both of them got 45s under the pillow, waiting. Well, actually, a spear. And the spear that's in the middle of the camp, like the scepter, it's, it, it's, a, it's symbolizing the royal presence of the king. And they're at the center of the camp. I mean, think about... 3,000 men, and you are entering into the center of that. Like every twig you're concerned about breaking, right? You got to be really, really, really quiet. But verse 12 tells us what's going on. They were in a deep sleep, brought by the Lord. Now, I don't know if they knew that at the moment. I don't know. But it says that the Lord put them to sleep, that they were able to enter into the center of, of, the, of the camp without waking anybody up. And what's so interesting about that word deep sleep, it's mentioned twice in the Old Testament, in the beginning, Genesis, right? The Lord put Adam into a deep sleep, created Eve. Also in in Genesis 15, the Lord comes and puts Abraham in a deep sleep and cuts the covenant with him. The narrator wants us to see this is not about the expertise of these men, although they were probably very good at what they did. It's about what God is doing in that camp, in that day. It is his providence. It is his sovereignty. It is the working out of his purposes, his holy and wise purposes. And over and over we are seeing, and I want you to see this, we are seeing that the emphasis is not on what David does, but God's personal and active providence in David's life. In David's rise to power. And they woke up and, and Abe is anxious. He's like, we have a great opportunity here. Louis says in verse 8, God has given your enemy into your hand. He says, this is the providence of God. And unlike in chapter 24, when David had an opportunity to kill the king, they said, go, you do it, David. Abe don't want no part of that. He's like, you know what? And we're not leaving this up to you anymore. Last time we told you to kill the king, you tore his robe. I'll do it myself. That's what he says. I'll do it myself. He, he, he's, he looks at that opportunity. Verse 8, let me pin him to the earth. We mentioned this last time in chapter 24, but I think I want, I want to mention it again. Many times, listen family, many times we see circumstances and the providence of God and we think right away that it's a green light to do what you want to do. Opportunity doesn't always imply, opportunity does not always imply approval. We're deceptive people. 
our hearts can be very deceptive. Just because God has opened up the possibility of a certain course of action does not mean that that action is always right or the will of God. David and Abe and you and I still need to be governed by the word of God, by the principles that are laid down in the word of God. And David seems to be growing in his understanding of this providence. Not, a, not Abe. Abe says, take him out. I'll take him out with one shot. I don't need, won't even need two. It's going to be so quiet. I am so good. Just give me the okay. We can kill him and go on our way. With his own spear. One thrust. He's, Abe is in, I was going to say the cave. Abe is in the camp. And Abe is thinking, you know what? I will be the instrument of divine deliverance. Abigail taught David much about vengeance last week. And now we see David learning much about providence. Verse 9. David said to Abishai, do not destroy him. Do not destroy him. For who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him. Or his day will come to die. Or he will go down into the battle and perish. Again, He's the Lord's anointed. He is divinely sanctioned leader. God anoints prophets, priests, and kings in the Old Testament and gives them the dignity of that office. Killing him would be in direct violation of God. But now David, which is different than chapter 24, now David conceives that God still has sovereign, will have his providential ways to take out Saul, but it won't be him. Look what he says. Either either, either. He'll grow old and die. Either he'll just be killed like Nabal on the spot or 10 days. Or he will go into battle. I don't know. But God has a way of working out his providence and doing what God wants to do. I'm not going to do it. That's what David is saying. I'm not going to do it. David is saying God knows. I'm not doing it. And David knows. Listen, David knows that God had spared Saul's life. But that Saul is not changing. There's no repentance. And the mercy and the kindness that David keeps showing the king really turns up to be fruitless. And his restraint from harming the king by killing the king was not the hope, listen, that Saul's going to change. The primary matter is that God will see to it. You know what that means for us? It means we have to be careful manipulating circumstances. We have to be careful manipulating people. To get what we want, when we want it, how we want it. I do it all the time. I got to be careful. You have to be careful. Even Jesus in the wilderness, if you remember, the kingdom is yours. Take it now. Jesus said, no. Not that way, but through suffering, through yielding to God's way and God's plan. I'm going to the cross, said to me. Be gone, Satan. You remember Matthew. David's restraint was because he trusted God. He trusted God. David did not know how the Lord would deal with Saul, but trust in God means believing that God will fulfill his promises, that which we, he said will come to pass in God's way, in God's timing. That's hard sometimes, is it not? 
I wonder what you are trusting God with today. I wonder what is there that you want to take matters into your own hands rather than waiting on and trusting in the Lord. Or the circumstance that you need to just wait. Or will you take matters into your own hands, manipulate them to get what you want? Do you find it difficult to trust in God? I do. Right? I got my lists. I like things to do. Sometimes waiting, which is active, by the way, not passive. Waiting on the Lord is active. We're waiting on the Lord. David is saying, look, in yourself, Saul, you deserve to die. You know, but you're the Lord's anointed. And and you have sacred dignity. I'm not going to do it. Listen, David did not know how God's providence was going to, right? The working out of God's will and purposes. God, uh, David did not know how providence would work out. He knew what obedience required. He didn't know how providence was going to work out, but he knew what he was called to do. But, although he didn't kill the king, he does take his spear and his water jug. I mean, verses 13 through 16, uh, Dave and Abishai walk right past 3,000 people, right? Take the spear in the water. And once they get in safe distance, they cry out to Abner. The text in verse 14, will you not answer me? David calling across the ravine means that he's probably been yelling for quite some time. Abner is rubbing his eyes. Verse 15, David says, look, guy, you had one job. Your job is to protect the king. That's the only thing you are supposed to do. And you know what? You blew it. You, the, whole, the, the, the enemy camp was, was, was taken. You botched your job. You're supposed to die. I mean, that's, that's what happens. Verse 15. You have not kept watch over your Lord. For one of the people, it was him, came in to destroy the king your Lord. The thing that you have done is not good. As the Lord lives, you deserve to die. And that day, that's exactly right. And if you look at it, David was, David cared more for, she said cared more for, David watched out over Saul more than Abner watched over Saul, right? And he says, oh, by the way, not, I don't have a piece of cloth in your hand this time. Look what I have. I have your spear in my hand, O king. And I have the water, the special water for the king in my hands. And then David takes it and takes a drink. No, I'm kidding, but I would have. <laughs> the breach camp. Look at the questions. I, I this is just unbelievable. And I'll explain to you about these questions. Verse 17 through 25, as I said, the rest of the chapter is the very last conversation Saul's going to have with David and David's going to have with Saul. That's it. Saul's going to be killed so- shortly. And the interchange between these two men, Saul murderously trying to kill David for a long period of time, begins, Saul begins both conversation, but ma- the majority of the text the narrator gives us is what David is saying, okay? Is what David is saying. But Saul asks, is that your voice? And David answers the king with three questions. And, and you know what? He does it so humbly. He still calls him my lord, the king. Not you idiot. Why? You, you know what I mean? Like he, he's, he's humble. David is humble. You crazy man. You know what I mean? David says, why does my lord pursue after his servant? Number question one. Number two. What have I done? Third question, what evil is in my hand? And before the king has an opportunity to to answer the question, David says there's only two possibilities, right? One, maybe, just maybe, David has truly sinned and the Lord has stirred Saul up against him to deal 
with his evil. And, and David is saying, if that's the case, if I sinned against the king, then I'm going to atone for that sin. That's what sacrifice is all about. I, I will bring a sacrifice. I'll offer a sacrifice that is acceptable before God. And as I sacrifice for the forgiveness of sin, there's no need, there's no need for, for you to pursue me anymore, David is saying. There can be forgiveness. There can be some, uh, at least a reconciliation can begin to take place. Now think about that for a minute. David, the one who's been running and running and running and running, who's shown nothing but, he'll say, righteousness and faith today, who's shown nothing but the right thing when it comes to the king, is asking the king, have I, have I done something? David is still willing to take responsibility for anything that he has or might have done to cause this conflict. That's incredible. Maybe it's the Lord chastising me. Maybe maybe it's something the Lord has done. And if so, I'm going to offer a a sacrifice for my sin. Now, there's some of you have a very tender conscience and, and, and you can't seem to move past, and you beat yourself up. You can't move, seem to move past the things you've done wrong, and you beat yourself up all the time. That's not what's happening here. I want you to be careful. There, there's forgiveness at the cross. There's the blood that is shed. There's, there's the cleansing work of the gospel. Some of you have attended conscience that way. But some people need to hear that accepting your part of the conflict is what you need to do, right? It's what you ought to do. Ask yourself, is the things in my life that need to be changed are things I need to accept as my fault and seek forgiveness and repentance? Some people need to do that. And, and let me add, when we are gospel people, when we are preaching the gospel to ourselves, when we are pressing the gospel deeper into our souls, taking responsibility for our wrongdoing should be rather easy. Let me explain. When, when there is conflict and you always feel the need to defend your actions, it's most likely that you feel that your dignity, your value, your personhood is under attack. But when you're, you know, and, and, and therefore I'm not going to expose myself. I'm not going to show my sin. I'm not going to acknowledge wrongdoing. I'll just hide under self-righteousness. But if you're gospel people, your life, your person, your dignity is based on the gospel. You, you, you truly, without question, deserve and recognize judgment and wrath belongs to you. That's so much so that God had to go to the cross with such great lengths to deal with your sin. And yet, he was willing and lovingly went and gave his life, the Lord Jesus, for you. And your dignity and your value and worth is secure in the gospel, secure in Christ. There's no need to defend yourself all the time because God has already defended you. You're secured in his eternal love. You are forever secure in his eternal acceptance because of the gospel. At that point, it's easy to say, I've, I've failed, I've sinned. David is secure in God's love. There's another possibility. He says, there may be a man. There may be somebody who's been speaking against me. There may be somebody who's wrongly accusing me. And if therefore, let him be accursed. And then David says something very interesting. Chapter uh, 26, verse 19b. For they, he says have driven me out this day, look what it says, that I should have no share in the inheritance of the Lord, saying, go serve other gods. What is he saying? 
Right? He's saying that because I am on the run, because I'm this fugitive, leaving the land of Israel, the inheritance of the Lord, David now is saying he cannot fellowship regularly with God's people. And wherever he finds himself, it's going to be in a pagan land. That's what it means to go serve other gods. I don't think David had a pagan understanding of, of, of the God of Israel. In, in that day, the pagans believed that their God was uh, a place where he would dwell in the land and he couldn't really leave the land. It was, he was tied to the land in which you were at. Your God's tied to the land in which you, which you dwell. Read the Psalms. David knew that's not the case. But, but David knew that God was going to meet his people in a special way in the land. That God would dwell and, and bring together a community in a place, in a specific community. Just as God chose a specific people to dwell, God chose a certain place to dwell as well. And David was driven off. J- David was cut off from the tabernacle. David was cut off from the sacrifices, from the priests, and from the festivals from public worship, and David is grieving over it. Of course, we're, we're, in, we're in the New Testament now, the cross, the gospel, the, the, the veil has been torn, right? The veil has been torn, and, and now uh, the panim, the face of God, the, the Spirit dwells in us and through the church. His presence is known, his glory presence is revealed. Peter writes about that in 1 Peter 2. He says, as you come to him, that's Christ, a living stone rejected by men in the sight of God... Chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up into a spiritual house. So yeah, we Christians have been given the Spirit of God. He dwells within us. He has sealed us. I get that. We are the temple, but so is the church. That's what he says. You're built up into a spiritual house, stone upon stone, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifice except to God through Jesus Christ. That text in, in Peter is about temples, about sacrifice. That's the language he's using. he's using. And he says, we come together, Christ. The Shekinah glory dwells in the presence of Christ when God's people gather together is greater, stone upon stone. If the gathering of God's people was taken from you, if you were unable to gather with God's people, would you be upset? Would you be distraught? David was. Do we recognize the importance of gathering together on Sunday morning? Obviously, you're here. You do. Having friends in the faith is very important. Joining in community group, very important. But gathering together in the corporate worship of God's people is at the top. That's what David is saying. And and there's no such thing... Now, I like to say this once in a while. There's no such thing as followers of Christ in the New Testament that are not connected to a local community. No such thing. In the New Testament, people of God gather under the headship of Christ and the authority of the Scripture. We believe and confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. We're organized together on the qualified biblical leadership. We gather regularly for the preaching of the word, the teaching of the word, for the worship of God's people. We observe the ordinance of baptism and communion. We give of our time and finances. We're unified in the spirit, disciplined for holiness, scatter into the world for the great commission as disciple makers, missionaries to the world for God's glory and our joy. That's the church definition of the New Testament. Okay? David implies... I've been, I've, been, I've been 
I'm outside the community of God. And then he turns to him and he says, look at verse, um, at the end here in this, in, this, uh, in this part. David then implies that the king's pursuit is like chasing a flea, a partridge in a mountain. David's like, listen, are, are you kidding me, Saul? Really? You got these 3,000 men and you're chasing after me as if you're chasing a flea or, or a partridge in the mountain. And now, verse 21. This chapter ends in extraordinary, and I hope I can explain it well. The first thing we see in this chapter, again, is the last time these two men will speak. Saul confesses his sin. Verse 21, I have sinned. I have sinned. Confession is good, but repentance is better. David knows that this is a brief and momentarily conf- momentary confession And in verse 21, when he says, I will not harm you again, behold, I acted foolishly and have made a great mistake. David doesn't go, man, that's great. Hey, guys, let's get our bags. We're going home. Because that's worldly sorrow. That's what Saul's doing, worldly sorrow. The shame of getting caught, which leads to death. His confession may or may not be sincere. I, I think it probably was sincere, but there was no repentance. Saul was, was, was a, acting like Nabal in some ways, a fool. And there's no reason for David to be a fool as well, right? Saul does not say that although David had the opportunity and good reason to kill me, he did no harm. And he says it because, look what it says. Saul does say, look, you, you didn't cause me any harm because my life was precious in your eyes this day. David hears this. Knows there's no repentance. Verse 22, come, send your men. I'll give them back your spear and you can have your water. And then verse 23, look at verse 23 with me. Verse 23, David says that the Lord rewards every man. Come and get your, come and get your, your spear, come and get your water. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his, what? Faithfulness. David acknowledged that he did right and that he was faithful. Even though God had placed Saul into his hands, David refuses to lift a hand against the Lord's anointed, and that is righteous. David has been faithful in his response to God. He believed that God would be the one to avenge him. Righteousness and faithfulness. Not scheming, not manipulative and, and cleverness, not power and control, not achievement and I've got to win, but righteousness and faithfulness, which is fundamental to the character of God and must be, therefore, the character of God's man, David. And David is righteous here. David is faithful here. But there will come a time, Second Samuel, there will come a time David won't be. But here, David's explaining the law of reaping and sowing, Galatians 6. The Lord will reward him. He's being faithful. He, he is trusting God. The Lord reward him. He is precious. And the Lord says to, to David, as Saul's life was precious in your sight, David says, in the sight of the Lord, may my life be precious. Do you notice that? One may think that David would say, you have been, your, your life has been precious to me and therefore I hope that my life is precious to you. That would make sense. That is not what David says. David says, I'm not looking to you 
Saul. I'm not, I'm looking to God. I'm not hoping in you. I'm not believing in you. The promise comes and the, and the blessing comes with the Lord. He placed himself under God's watchful eye and his mighty hand. As your life was precious to me, my life be precious in the sight of the Lord. How great is that? How wonderful and marvelous is that truth that when we face tribulations and persecution and hardship, we have no other God but our God. That we are precious in his sight. David himself knew that even this was a time when he could turn this occasion to the praise and the worship and gratitude of our God. And then the very last words, verse 25, David will ever hear, Saul will ever speak. Then Saul said to David, blessed be you. My son David, you will do many things and will succeed in them. So David went his way and Saul returned to his place. Another prophetic voice coming from Saul about David's succession. And notice David goes his way, Saul goes his way. David forgives Saul, I believe he does that. You can see it in his words, in his humble, in his attitude, he forgives him. But he does not go back with him. Notice that in the text. You see, forgiveness is not the same as trust. Forgiveness is not the same as reconciliation. Forgiveness is always substitutionary. It's always costly. And and we have to face the hurt, face the pain. We suffer and we choose to forgive. A crisis of the will, a deliberate action of, of releasing the offended party. Offending party from personal punishment, from vengeance. We let them off the hook. We suffer. We resolve to live with the consequences without demanding retribution and vengeance. But that does not mean, it does not mean that trust and reconciliation can come from it. It can, but, now hear these words. It means that trust and reconciliation can come from forgiveness, but forgiveness must take place. It's not a requirement. Sometimes there are people just not worthy of trust. There's some people that's just not worthy of trust. The abuse is too great. There's been no repentance. One must forgive, but there may not be reconciliation. David goes one way. Saul goes the other. See that? Let's end our time looking at the gospel again. Isn't this story remindful of the gospel? David is saying, the Lord gave you into my hands. This day, I, I, I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. I, I deliberately walked into the enemy's camp. Unlike the cave where David, excuse me, Saul came into the camp. David is saying, I deliberately went into your camp. I came into your camp and you deserve to die. I had your life in my hands. I could have killed you, but I spared your life because your life was precious to me. David is saying, that's the gospel. That's what I trust. As your life was precious in my sight, so is my life precious in the sight of the Lord. David risked his life and entered the enemy camp and spared the enemy. Can you think of another man who walked into the enemy camp and though he had the right to destroy and to kill his enemy, he spared them and he holds them precious in his sight? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that the gospel? The Savior of the world enters the enemy camp, not just sets captives free, but spares their life. He binds the enemy. He releases the captives. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the gospel is veiled to those who are perishing, for the mind has been blinded by Satan to keep him from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And yet we read in Colossians that although we are blinded, although we deserve damnation 
It says God made us alive, forgiving us of our sins. He canceled the record of debt that stood against us and its legal demands. All of us are sinners. He set it aside by nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and the powers in the world and put them to open shame. How? By triumphing over them in him, in the gospel. We all need, we all need a strong man to come in. Now I want you to notice too in verse 23. What is David's reward? What is David's basing his reward on? Look what it says. Righteousness and his faithfulness. Yes, he is righteous. Yes, he is faithful. But 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12, David will fall flat on his face and sin greatly by committing adultery and, and judicial murder. Remember those words, righteousness and faithful. Look at Revelation is a wonderful reality coming together in the climatic way in the gospel. It says this about Jesus. I saw the heavens open. And behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it called Faithful and True. Sound familiar? And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. Was David the faithful one, the ultimate righteous one who could save his people? No. Can he deliver people ultimately from the enemy camp? No. Only Jesus can. David points to the Savior. He's a foreshadow of the Savior. But David's greatest son, the Lord Jesus, is the one who's sitting on a throne who will come and declare war. He is the faithful and true. He is the righteous one. Listen, there's only one hope, and it's Jesus, not David. He's the true and the better anointed king. Jesus goes into the camp, disarms the enemy, and he is the faithful and true and releases us from bondage. That's the gospel, that God would and should have destroyed us, yet rather than destroy us, All that we deserve, he spares us and he gives us his life. His righteousness is imputed to us. And let me end with one verse. I love this verse. Isaiah. I am the Lord your God. The Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I gave Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba, in exchange for you. God saved Israel uh, at Egypt's expense. God handed Babylon over uh, to Cyrus to release the Jews. God's loving intention for them and for us is fulfilled. Why? Look at the next verse, verse 4. Because you are precious in my eyes, and I honored and I love you. Don't let the simplicity of that verse go over your head. Let it sink in. Because you are precious in my eyes. I love you. Lord, allow that verse, the truth of what Christ has done for us, and the way in which he lived a perfect life that can be imputed to us by faith, because he lived and he overcame the grave, because he Paid the penalty for sin. And our greatest enemy is really your wrath. And we see Jesus on the cross dying, taking your wrath in our place, rising from the dead in our place, living a perfect life in our place. We are precious in your sight. Oh, Father, help us to be filled with love and gratitude and thanksgiving today for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.